Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome back to Heard Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Still fighting a head cold, but it makes my voice sound deeper. So let's just roll with it, shall we? So glad you joined us as we try to turn down the noise in the news cycle, get to some stuff that really matters, none of the stuff that doesn't, and get some knowledge and information to understand the times we live in. Let's start with a labor brewing issue. We've been talking about it on and off. Now it's come to a head. Uh, the labor rail freight strike. Uh, this, of course, goes back three years. These negotiations have been going on. Now, back in September, remember what's one of our founding principles here? Things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. So here's a sequence. These negotiations have been going on for three years. Back in September, the White House took a victory lap after getting the union heads and the rail companies to agree to a tentative agreement. That was step one in a two-step process, though. But the Biden administration went ahead and took a victory lap because... That, because of the way strike rules and union voting goes, they knew it would push it past the election. Here we are past the election. Guess what happened? The union membership, the rank and file, several of them are not voting for this deal. And it doesn't matter how many, although right now it's sitting at three, probably going to go to four. None of the rail uh, unions are going to cross a picket line. So if one strikes, they all strike. Now, they consolidated the date because the date goes off of which union said the strike. They've decided collectively December 9th will be the strike date if no agreement is reached. So what happens now? Well, normally what would happen is you'd continue negotiations, but Congress has a delineated power where they can step in and order binding arbitration. So basically they would go to court to an arbiter with the deal that is already on the table. They would parse that out a little bit further. The arbitrator would just hand it to them and tell both parties to deal with it. So now President Biden came out and has issued an extraordinary statement from the White House about how Congress needs to fix this. You really need to read this document. It is amazing. It is quintessential Joe Biden and the 50 years of book we have on him. Uh, we'll post a link to it. Read it all for yourself. But basically, it's almost like that old meme where you see uh, D.L. Hughley shoot the guy in the chair and then turn to the camera and go, why did you make me do this? Or why did so-and-so make me do this? Biden is basically saying, why isn't Congress fixing this? Well, sir, you helped make this mess. Now, not all this rail freight strike is President Biden's fault. This has been going on for years. The sticking points of, of course, usual stuff, pay and benefits. But the real one that's really got the workers in a twist is the sick days. They don't get sick days off and they want them. These are long hours and lots of travel and the company doesn't want to give sick days because those are guaranteed days off that they can't control. That's the real sticking point to all this. That sick day provision is not in the deal that Congress can put into binding arbitration. So neither which way this thing goes, the workers aren't going to be getting that. So what do we expect to happen now? Well, Congress is going to have to come together and get some kind of a package pushed through to push this to binding arbitration. In the short term, that would avert a strike right before Christmas, which is what the administration is really scared of now that we're past the election. 
Long term, though, this is going to make the workers even matter and dig in even more on an issue that, frankly, I think they have a really good grievance and a fair point about. So they're going to once again try to kick the can down the road. The politicians will say this is a victory, but I just want you to go ahead and dog ear this story. Put a marker on it, bookmark it online, however you want to do it. Just put a little asterisk here that we told you in September this was going to happen in the fall, that this wasn't a done deal. Now they're going to force arbitration on the folks or Congress because there's some rumblings on the right. They would be more than happy to uh, sabotage this so that President Biden doesn't get a win here. Uh, just bookmark it because this is going to get kicked down the road again. Now, one other thing to watch for. A lot of the posturing now is since we're past the election is, remember, Republicans are going to be in charge of the House of Representatives after this. So if they can slide this out a little further, the Republicans get the blame. Right now, the Democrats would get the blame. President Biden knows all this. He's an expert at this. He's been doing it for years. Why did you make me do this? That's the text of this statement, an extraordinary statement. One other thing I want to mention when you read it, he has this extraordinary line in there where he goes, as a proud pro-labor president, I'm quoting from the White House release here, I am reluctant to override the ramification procedures and views of those who voted against the agreement. But in this case, where the economic impact of a shutdown would hurt millions of other working people's families and registered voters, I'm sorry, it didn't say registered voters. I added that on. I believe Congress must use its power to adopt a deal. That's a quote from the thing. We will link to it again, read the whole thing. But there's a very old joke uh, in politics about our Team Blue friends that uh, Democrats are only as progressive as the nearest moderate that will complain about it. Well, there's going to be a lot of people complaining if this gets pushed through because this is President Biden wanting a deal with the union heads and the rail companies for his own benefit and the benefit of the country. Granted, we don't want an economic shutdown. But he's also saying he's pro-union while screwing the workers even harder and making them even madder. This is going to make them distrust their own union heads. It's also going to make negotiations with the rail companies even more fraught. This is not going to be a solution. This is pulling the pin and handing the grenade to the next guy and hoping it doesn't blow off in your own hand when you transfer it. Kicking can the can down the road is bad governance. This deal is going to be bad governance, although it's necessary in the moment. But it's only necessary because the mess got made in the first place. More Hertel right after this. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Ah, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, big, big story going on overseas, kind of breaking through in the American media a little bit. So let's go over to the UK and get some international perspective on what is going on in China right now. We have another one of our great young voices, uh, talents that we love to talk to so much from the UK. Noah Kagali, how are you, sir? Great to see you and appreciate your time. Very well. How are you? I'm very, very well. Let's start with some background, though, because somebody's going to be like, well, why are you going to the UK for China? This is a country that you know pretty well, though, isn't it, my friend? Yeah, this is a country where I spent a significant amount of time growing up, and I really saw this this modern Xi Jinping evolution. 
um, into the China that that kind of after the Thatcher years at the end of the the ninety or the nineteen hundreds that it that it started to you know modernize and liberalize and I think we saw as a family firsthand how it started to descend again into this pretty rampant authoritarianism and, and really see the impact that especially technology had on the surveillance state and the way that the Chinese government was was really in control of every part of your life. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second, because I know like um, I have family that married into our family from Hong Kong. So we tended to focus on like what happened in Hong Kong. People look at those sorts of things. What was it like in mainland to what was it like on mainland China? Because I think the Western media, we have these gaps of Tiananmen Square, COVID, whatever's happening now. And they miss that run up you're talking about with the, the rise of Xi Jinping and the surveillance state and modern China as we know it today in the year 2022. Bridge that gap for us a little bit as somebody that was kind of there for some of it. What was going on on mainland China? Because the truth of that stuff doesn't really get out to us because of the media controls, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. So what's really important to understand is that essentially the Western world decided that the way that it could influence China and it could create a China that could fully participate in Pax Americana, for example, was to essentially trade with it and develop with it. So that over time, the Chinese people grew so accustomed to those Western niceties that we have, that democracy and freedom and those, those tenets of the Western civilization essentially came with it. So loads of effort was put into essentially turning Shanghai as a really good example into this massively developing city. And you saw that there's one side of the bond which you know, in, in the turn of the century was essentially essentially just you know, paddy fields that is now covered in stunning skyscrapers, beautiful lights. And if you just take a snapshot, looks absolutely magnificent. But the cost of that was genuine lies, is the Chinese government realized really quickly that it was a lot more efficient for them to develop a city with no regard for the people in it and make it look fantastic for the rest of the world if they just abandoned principles of human rights and freedom. So you had, you had scaffolding going up skyscrapers essentially made of bamboo, which as an image is incredible, but when you really think about it, it's pretty deeply terrifying. Um, and that essentially encapsulates the attitude that they took. We're going to have these Western niceties, but but go back to the what they view or what the party view as the Chinese principles. And those principles are essentially the surveillance state. So you know, everybody in China uses something called WeChat, and that has spread into other parts of the world. But you couldn't, it's essentially a warped form of, of WhatsApp, basically, that you can pay, you can pay for things on. Um, and you essentially use it as Facebook as well, but the Chinese government have their tentacles in all of it. And the owners of WeChat, I'm not sure exactly who they are, but they're essentially the Chinese government. So everything you pay for, everywhere you go, Xi Jinping has an eye on it all. And that was the price that the Chinese people paid for development. Um, so you might find many of them thinking that's just how it is and that's how the rest of the world is. But they, in fact, have been really, they, well, they've sold their souls for, for something that was pitched to them as the Western dream. Yeah, Noah Kogali joined us. Now, people are like, well, we want to know about the protest. This is what you got to know to get to the protest, though, because we always say on this program, one of our principles, things happen in a sequence. They don't happen in a vacuum. China, economically, we've had people in here talk about it. Like, they understand the demographics. They understand the birth rates they have. They understand their limitations. They're trying to get rich before the economic downturn hits is what they're trying to do in a nutshell. All that human rights. But at the same time, let's be adults here. One of the reasons the Western world uh, was okay with all of this was not just the stability. This is really big business because China has a 750 million strong workforce that is beholden to their government. That is a unique business opportunity to people who can get past their morals and the human rights of it 
And that's the toxic brew that's really made what China is today as far as human rights and geopolitically goes, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. There's a few different different problems here for China. So what the first thing that is, that is important to understand, it's not really a problem for China now, but now that the rest of the world has become aware of it, it could be, is that China has essentially embarked on policy of debt trap diplomacy across Africa. So if we're going to view what happened in the Middle East over the last century um, and investment, um, is probably a good way of, of putting it, investment in the Middle East and the control that comes with that. China have essentially you know, got ahead of the rest of the world in doing that in Africa because they've realised that lots of the really you know, fundamental, something like lithium, um, that is, you can find lots of it in Africa and it's going to be incredibly important as we go towards electrification. China have essentially got hold of that and have many of these countries in debt trap diplomacy. So the rest of the world has suddenly become very quickly aware that they need to deal with this China problem because in 50 years time, it's going to be a hell of a lot bigger than it is now. And this is something that everybody suddenly tried to realize. So the wars have started to close in around China. Their authoritarian principles have got a bit shaky when dealing with economics. Their housing, housing market struggled a fair amount. And over COVID, they've seen lots of people realize that cheap labor can be found out with of China. It's not just you know, some Chinese monopoly. So the economy is starting to struggle a little bit more and they're essentially getting cut out of lots of, West, lots of Western democracies, which is where they got lots of their technology from. So there's a lot of issues here, which have essentially you know, condensed themselves into what happened in Hong Kong, which I think everybody probably knows about, and, and that last you know, Western glimmer of freedom in, in China essentially disappeared, and what's happened to the Uyghur Muslims. And the CCP basically going, look, we need to get rid of anybody that could be inside of these walls and, and pose a threat. And people have started to wake up to that because it is a lot harder to hide what you're doing in, in 2022 than it was in 1989. And that's something I don't think they really appreciated was that there is, there is a bit more information coming in and out of China now than there was back then. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Noah Kogali joining us. This is so important to understanding what we're going on. You just mentioned it. The policy of the ruling CCP in China, the Xi Jinping government, is the people in the government are one. The people in the government are one are China. There's no separation between those three things. You have lived there. You've been on the ground there. You have friends and family there. How they've tried to force that on the people. Officially, nobody's going to challenge that. How ingrained is that now in the Chinese people? Because we try to be very careful and say, okay, look, the Chinese government and Chinese people are two separate things. 
I don't know if you can give me a ratio or what, but just how ingrained is it and how much is it the people? Because I think that starts to get to where we're at with these protests is where you start seeing some separation from the propaganda. It, it, this is an incredibly hard question to answer because people would be so terrified about telling you that they weren't on the side of the CCP. So you would you would get basically everybody silently nodding if you asked who here believes that the CCP are you know the supreme rulers, and they wouldn't voice their their concerns because essentially they would get disappeared. So it's it's incredibly tough. I think my feeling would be that I, I would have faith in humanity. I would hope um, that these people understand that what's going on is is not necessarily right and can see through the very thin veneer um that is has been cast cast on them by the ccp I, again you're not going to get an easy answer to that because you can't really do any proper polling and if you go out on the street and ask somebody they're going to think you're you know tricking them into in some concentration camp in the north of china so it, incredibly difficult but i i think when we deal with china we still have to operate on the belief that it is innate human human yearning to be free, and that those those principles of of goodness are are universal. We still have to operate on that on that idea. Yeah, Noah Kagali joining us. So, is it fair to bring up this point then? Because I really want the Chinese people to be free. Like I want all people on Earth to be free as much as possible. Because you know, I'm I love freedom. I'm an American. That's you know, I want them to be free those of us in the west especially in america the uk places like this should we be careful putting the larger geopolitical narrative on these protests for that very reason though because how much of this i understand there's all this background and i understand they're oppressed but when it's something like the covid restrictions which is what they're really pushing back against now plus things like living situations in the housing and the stuff we saw at foxconn and all that do we need to be careful making sure we don't take the protests for what they are right now and putting too big of, oh, this is going to be the movement that topples the government? Because we've got a really bad record in the Western press of predicting those over the last 10, 20 years, don't we? Yeah, I, I think if we're being honest, um, I think very, very few commentators would suggest that this was the thing that was going to topple Xi Jinping. He's, he's had hard challenges, um, and I think he'll probably get through it. it there'll be scars. But they will get through. They will get through it. Unfortunately, what is interesting is whilst it has happened and it's been triggered by the by the COVID issue, the protest of that of that blank white piece of paper. And I would encourage anybody that's not seen those pictures to go and find them because they are they are incredibly incredibly passionate. Yeah, explain but what that is for folks just so they know real quick. Sorry to interrupt you, but explain what those are. Lots of students have been holding up blank pieces of A4 paper, which essentially. Uh, are designed to give across the message that they have no freedom of speech. So it's not just about the authoritarianism we've seen in regards to COVID. It's about the, the fact that people aren't allowed to speak about it. And uh, that is that is the issue. That's something that I think that will be a longer term problem. So whilst COVID is the, you know, the tip of the iceberg or the thing that's the straw that's broken the camel's back here, this is going to be a longer term issue because the people, people of China are starting to realise, I think, that they're not being given a voice to talk about things even something like the covid response so something really interesting here that's been picked up especially over the, over the past week or so with the football world cup happening is the coverage in china is different to the coverage in the rest of the world so what you're seeing is a 30 second or so delay on the on the tv coverage which is very normal for china we used to sit and watch the news and it used to randomly turn off at points but a 30 second delay in which crowd shots are being replaced with individual shots of managers or players and the guess is that what that is, is designed to not show people in crowds not wearing masks, because that would spark a debate about, well, 
do we all need to wear masks and is this all sensible? And that's something really interesting, which I think speaks to the larger issue here, is that the Chinese people are starting to realize that the zero COVID policy embarked on by the Chinese government is not something that's based in health data. It is purely something which is authoritarian and based in control. And that's the thing that they want to tackle. And that's the thing that students are starting to realize. So whilst this might not be the thing that breaks, you know, breaks Xi Jinping's grip on China, it is a very, very important turning point where students especially and the young people because they're the ones that are going to make the change are starting to realize that their voice and their opinions are not allowed to be heard yeah noah kagali joining us you're talking about those students to go back to tiananmen again because that's the image most people in the west get as far as chinese descent goes and maybe the umbrella protests in hong kong those are kind of the ones that stick in the front of your mind this is very early days to this. People forget now because they just remember the guy standing in front of the tank. There was months of buildup to Tiananmen before it got crushed and knocked down. There's also just logistics because China is a massive cut. Like if they wanted to send the army to put this down, it'd probably take them two weeks to get them in place. Talk about a little bit of the timeline here because this is nowhere near as massive as what Tiananmen was, but this is also way earlier than when we got to those images in Tiananmen. What do you expect the crackdown to be, the version of it's come, and even the people that are very pro-China are like, it's going to take a while for them to get their response together, how they want to handle this. What do you foresee happening in the next couple of weeks as far as the government response to this? Because they're going to respond. Absolutely. So, so the general playbook that they will use is they won't go hard and fast straight away because then you destroy the illusion that you're allowed to have a different opinion. If they walked in tomorrow and just, just obliterated the protests in, in some bloody and gruesome way, it would go down awfully and that would work for them. So what I'd imagine they're going to do, and this is based on Tiananmen and Hong Kong, is they will wait for leaders, essentially, to pop up out of the students and that's who they'll go for. And they'll show that if you stick your head above the parapet, then we'll come for you and hope that that encourages everybody else to keep their head down. And that's the way they generally do things, is, is they try and avoid going for everybody all at once. They'll try and find individuals and ostracize them. So you, you saw that especially in Hong Kong recently. That's probably the probably the best example where they came for came for anybody whose name you would recognize. Nathan Law, for example, his personal favorite, somebody who was essentially became an idol of the public. And that runs very counter to the way that the CCP thinks everyone should work, because they think everybody should be, be this, this massive blob. So over the next few weeks, I would assume that anybody that steps forward out of this body to be a real essentially the one with the loudspeaker over and over and over again it'll be them that or their family that the ccp come for yeah we saw this i'm glad you mentioned the hong kong thing because we actually talked to a couple of the dissidents that were actually in those crowds they were there for it and that's what they said they look look they've after about three or four weeks they came out with a list i think it was about 350 names they took and the next day the streets were empty because there was nobody to organize so it's very much the hong kong method that they have kind of perfected for lack of a better term as horrific as it is Noah Kogali joining us. What does the West do here? Because obviously we're too economically entangled to completely put any kind of economic pressure on China. I go back to the Cold War 
it's undeniable that mass media in the form of radio and television had a cultural impact on the Soviet Union as it started to fall. It's just it's inarguable that that happened. You mentioned things like the World Cup. Is it something we should pay more attention to the culture side of this, maybe more than the policy side? That Because no matter how much they restrain the technology, some of this stuff must be getting through or they wouldn't be throwing a fit about it, right? Is that something we should maybe be paying more immediate attention to? Well, what I think is important here, so there's a couple of different strands. I think it, it is key to understand what, what the major players in this and the historical major players are doing at the moment. So from a, a Times article in, in the UK uh, a couple of days ago, it sounds like the US have started to open back channels, which seem to have closed. Um, with China again, because they're so, so scared of China aligning with Russia. So you can understand why they're doing that. Um, but for somebody that is especially especially worried about the Chinese threat, that's that's concerning. The Germans have essentially taken the angle that the British did under Thatcher, which was essentially, we'll try and trade them out of this. And if we keep trading with them, then they'll just eventually turn Western, because that worked so well last time. Um, and the French seem to think that there'll be a mediator between the Russians and the Ukrainians, because, again, that makes complete sense. Of course, they would be. Um, and, and I hope the sarcasm has come across there. Um, when the British have essentially last night um, started using the word robust pragmatism. So you take from that what you will. It, it kind of runs in the face of each other with robust being quite a strong. We're going to really take it to take it to the CCP, take it to China. Um, and then pragmatism kind of going the other way and suggesting it might be a bit more wet on it. So we'll see. There's lots of countries running different routes here. But what you hope is happening behind the scenes is this information war, because the Chinese are doing it here. So uh, I'm not sure about the US, but in the, in the UK, the Chinese have essentially this system um, where they are infiltrating universities and schools through you know, teaching Chinese is, the, is, is what they suggest it is. But actually, it's intelligence agents essentially coming over to the Western world and trying to convert people to the Chinese way of thinking. You'd hope that we are running something, if if not slightly slightly less James Bond-esque, that we are running information campaigns in China to hopefully ensure that people are realising what's happening and break through that shell that the CCP want to be around China. And in the long term, that's probably what's going to have the greatest effect if we acknowledge that a billion people in China are going to need to be brought on side to, to really make fundamental change. So whilst it's important that publicly and in the international international stage, we, we talk, talk big and talk strong about, about uh, Taiwan and about these protests and about, for example, the BBC journalist that just a couple of days ago was assaulted by the Chinese police. And it's important that we all come together and talk big about that and really shine a light on it and talk tough. We don't you know, pander to them. We also need to acknowledge how important the stuff behind the scenes is and, and the, the, the more gritty side of international politics where we are fighting a secret war where there's no guns, but the, you know, the, the bullets are information and, and really hope that affects long-term change that in the long term, the Chinese people can overthrow the CCP because if we're going to if we're going to affect a, something permanent, it's going to need the people's consent. Yeah, Noah Kagali joining us from over in the UK. There's a very visible side of that information war that they're fighting, though. They are actively and systematically targeting dissidents and activists in Western countries. We saw the bomb threat call in nonsense in London. Uh, we've seen them actually go outside the consulates and physically get into altercations with people. We know about the things like the Confucius Institutes in the States where they're infiltrating academia. We know that they're trying to, you know, get their, they got themselves a port in Sri Lanka. They got an airport in Africa now. They're using all these other things. 
they're going to keep trying those methods and they're visible right in front of us. How should we that have platforms and our social media and our, how should we be talking about that side of it? Because that's where we can talk about it and the dissidents maybe can't or the people in China can't. That's stuff we can see on our news feeds as long as we pay attention and find it. How important is it for people that have a voice to talk about those items and keep them going because they do fall through the cracks of the major news cycle? Yeah, it's incredibly important to keep talking about these things as much as possible because it's very easy to get caught up in our own in our own small, be it local or national politics, which are incredibly important. But then that's how these massive beasts of issues sneak up over 50 years and then are there and we can't deal with them. So it's incredibly important that we stay aware. But that should also, hopefully, in, in, in my opinion at least, lead to a public acceptance that some things might be slightly more expensive for us as, as nations, as the UK, as the US, but we need to do them anyway. So locking somebody like Huawei out of our 5G networks in the UK is probably, you know, that's probably a more expensive option. Or locking them out of nuclear development. Those are important things. And we need to be aware as a country that they're going to be more expensive if we do that, but that we need to. And people aren't going to believe that we need to if they don't know what's going on. So just for ourselves, as much as, as the people that are being subjugated on the other side of the world, it's incredibly important to stay aware and informed on. Yeah, Noah Kagala, you just mentioned it. So let's let's take one of the elephants out of the room here. The CCP thinks very long. You know, they don't have five-year plans like the Russians used to do. They got 50-year plans. They plan ahead. They have their dictatorship in place. Xi Jinping just consolidated his power probably for life for all practical purposes here a couple of months ago. You know, you in the UK, you're on your third PM just this year. Uh, we change presidents every four to eight years, and we change Congress every two years. They have a built-in advantage to their system. You talked about the different ways country. You know, France has its own program. Germany has its own program. The UK. There's a real problem with coherency in Western democracies and democratic republics that are trying to counter them just built into the cake, isn't there? No, absolutely. And this is part of the issue is that democracy, for all its all its brilliance and as much as it is a moral good, is a way less effective of becoming some superpower than just being a dictatorship. Because it means you can you know do whatever you want and it doesn't really matter what everyone thinks about it. So the Chinese are always going to have an advantage in that sense. So we've both got to operate on the on the rose-tinted glasses principle of democracy and freedom will come good in the end, but also look for something of a middle ground here. So we're quite lucky over here in the UK that it essentially seems that, that Labour and the Conservatives have essentially agree on most foreign policy. That's not always been the case, but that's where we are now. And that's something that we need to try and make sure that the entire Western world does you know come together on whether that's through something like the un or whether that's through something like nato we do need to bring people in the same direction on the same principles and if they won't come we need to convince them because this in the next hundred years will be one of the most important important developments that you know, the world has ever seen and there is a risk that because we are so obsessed especially now with these hot topics and these big arguments and these visceral politics that will lose sight of what is really important in the long term. People really love hot takes, and they go down really well on Twitter. But this is not a time for hot takes. This is a time for sensible politics, where we go, look, there's a massive, scary problem coming over the horizon. Let's all deal with it together. This isn't a left or right issue. This is a you know, future of humanity issue, and I don't say that lightly. 
Yeah, Noah Kogali, you just brought up a great point that we need to discuss, though, is the way you get that, though, is you have to have leadership. Who does China see as the Western leadership? Because because of Hong Kong and other things, you know, the UK for, you know, better part of 100 some years was kind of seen as the gateway there because they had that relationship. Obviously, the US since World War II has obviously dominated the Pacific in multiple ways. But who does China see as the leader of the West that they most have to deal with? Economically, it's probably America. But who are they seeing it from their point of view? So this is something that's quite interesting in the Chinese psyche. Whilst we in the West will look at individual countries and go Russia and China, they're the two big threats. The Chinese psyche and the psyche they've developed over the past hundred years, that they are the sleeping giant and they are better than everyone else, essentially means they don't think there is, a, is any leadership anywhere else. And this was the same mistake as the Russians made when they invaded Ukraine and thought that nobody was going to step up to the mark because the West is weak. China also thinks that. So this is you know, the soft underbelly of these dictatorships is they don't actually appreciate the fact that serious resolve can come out of democracies. And that that's something that's going to be quite interesting to see play out. So whilst they'll understand that the US is incredibly important economically, in their mind, everybody else is entirely dependent on them. And their, their relations with Australia, for example, have kind of compounded that. But it will be interesting when the entire Western world, which has proved it can come together, does come together what they'll be able to do because again they've been telling their own people for you know, 50 years that the entire western world is weak and limp and flaccid and it won't do anything so when they do it'll be very very interesting to see how they react yeah noah kagali like you just said though actions not words they tell their own people they present the front you know expanded military we had that great picture about three four weeks ago was Xi Jinping and his his higher staff all in fatigues which was really an odd kind of picture um this sort of projection of power but their actions tell us what they're scared of they are scared to death of social media they are absolutely terrified of media infiltration in the culture we already talked about it a little bit take it from that angle though is because they tell us what they're worried about with what they do the modern technology scares the hell out of them doesn't it Absolutely. And this is an, another thing that's that's a really odd two-sided coin here, is it's the technology which has allowed them to control their own people with, with such effectiveness. It is also the same thing that they are utterly terrified of. Uh, it is odd to me that when I'm talking to people you know, in day-to-day -day life about what our, as a family our experience in China was, that they are still confused by the fact we couldn't get on Google. As something as, as basic as that, the only one we could use was Bing. And I, I don't know your personal opinions on Bing, but it was awful. Um, and essentially, I just don't use that principle now because the only reason it was available was because it bowed to the Chinese government. So we couldn't get on Bing, we couldn't watch the news, and he couldn't do any of these things because they were so scared of information. And that's the really, really interesting bit. Is it's, it's the information that they've used to, to establish their place in the world that they are so terrified of. And this is something where something like Elon Musk's satellites that he sent above Ukraine could be incredibly effective because that is a way that you could bring information to China. And I, I'd imagine they would probably go and shoot it down. I'm not sure how you'd bring a satellite down, but you'd imagine that, that it would be an incredibly effective way of that information war happening because that's where this is going to be fought. This is a billion people who are essentially not aware of what the other eight billion people on this or the other seven billion people on this planet think and what they're doing and that is something that we really need to focus on getting across and we've got to find a way of doing that effectively
Yeah, Noah Kagal, you just mentioned the billion people. That has been the secret sauce to everything economically and world power-wise. Uh, look, they got the numbers, and numbers mean something. Sometime in the spring, some people think it's already happened, depending on who you trust. Somewhere in here, India is going to surpass them in population with a much smaller economy. You, just simple economic. They got a lot more room to grow, and they got more people to do it with. There's other demographic challenges coming from China. They're acutely aware of this. Yes, that they've got a. They're in a closing window that they've got to try to get some stuff done. How does that calculus change what they're doing right now and show what they're doing right now? Yeah, absolutely. This is in the same way as Putin has wanted to put a full stop at the end of his chapter in history. Today's China might see that chapter closing quite quickly and not want to end it with a comma where the next word is India. And India will always have advantages over China because it's part of the Commonwealth. It's had a long, long history of cooperation, even though at the moment it's not it's not viewed as a trusted partner, but it is it is a partner which is a lot closer to the Western world than China is. And it, it may be that that hubris to want to put a full stop at the, at the end of your name in history that is that is driving lots of this. And that, that breeds rashness, that, that breeds bad decisions. And that'll be something that's that I think when we look back on this and back on this period in history, especially, will will be a massive lens to see the lots of the actions of these dictators and, and why they're doing certain things. Uh, that will be really re interesting to see you know, in 50 or 100 years when hopefully we're all still here and nothing, nothing nuclear and, and grisly has happened. Yeah, you mentioned the nuclear. So I've got to ask you, I know it's all projection, but everybody's worried about war with Taiwan. I actually, when they did that, I already mentioned it. The fatigue picture was Xi Jinping, which just looked absolutely ridiculous, but he did it. I'm actually kind of, I hope, and I hope I'm right on this one. I was wrong about Russia, but I don't know that they really want an out and out invasion of Taiwan because it'd be really bad for business. And they are absolutely hyper-focused on the business side of it. They're seeing what's happening in Russia. And I don't think they do it. I think they continue to exert pressure in other ways. Of course, they want to crush them and take them over. But I think they look at Russia and go, nope, it's like the old mob thing. If everybody's fighting, nobody's making money, right? I think the business side will keep them from that for as long for right now. I think they'll sable rattle it. What's your feeling on it, though? Yeah, no, I, I think I think you're right. Uh, what I would imagine is going to happen here is the Chinese are going to sit down and go, what's going to be more effective? Us actually invade Taiwan and give everyone else a reason to get, you know, maybe not actually military, you know, engage in conflict with us. Or do we do this essentially underhanded and we just instill people that we want to run Taiwan in Taiwan? And that's the long term. And we still go, look, they're separate. We never invaded them. You can't get mad with us but actually they control it. And the rest of the world, I think, will still need to respond really strongly to that, but it'll be a really good excuse for them not to. Um, so whilst I'm incredibly concerned about that, if I was some you know, dictator in China, that would be what I was doing because it is way more effective. You don't then have to go to your people, go, all right, okay, who's going to fight for this country? Because that can end really badly. And the Western world doesn't then take the fight to you or it has an excuse not to. Yeah, Noah Kigali, I want to end this conversation with this because we went through, I threw a lot of hard stuff and you did great with it, but I'm, I want to end on this because I think it's the thing we don't focus enough on. Again, you live there. Talk for just a second about the Chinese people themselves. This is obviously one of the richest cultures in human history. They go back way further than most Western countries. There's a lot of good there. Put a human face on what the Chinese people are going through right now under this dictatorship and how we should view them separate from the Xi Jinping's and all the geopolitics. Just put a personal face on it for us. Yeah, so I, I, what's a story is probably the best way of doing it. So 
I, I don't know how much people know about how Westerners live in, in Shanghai, for example, but essentially they're, they're all living on compounds. Um, and what you've got in these compounds is the, is the very wealthy Chinese and all the Western, Western expats. And just behind our compound, the second stint that we lived there, there was a really big tower block, which was, I never, never spoke to the people that was in it, but it wasn't, wasn't very wealthy um, and it didn't look great. And I remember I flew back to the UK and flew back back to Shanghai and went to the compound and the tower block wasn't there anymore. Um, and you knew in your heart of hearts that what had probably happened, which is somebody had gone, that doesn't look very nice, we're just going to demolish it and essentially to hell with the people that were there. Um, and I remember asking some people that were, that were essentially supposed to be guarding or staffing the compound uh, what had happened. And there was just, there was this sadness um, but the I, I don't know it was never there, um, and you could really see that they did understand that something had happened and it was wrong and it was probably very evil, but that there was a risk to them and their family and their livelihood if they acknowledged it, and that's something. There's an incredible sadness there um, that is is quite hard to get across because you can't deal with your grief then and you can't deal with the grief you're probably seeing quite regularly, um, and it is that kind of thing. There was homelessness is never good to see um but you used to see it sometimes and it would appear for for two 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 weeks two months um in in places where westerners used to go and then one day there would just be no homeless people anywhere and everybody would act like it was just how it was and again there would just be this sadness and then six months later the homelessness would appear again and then everyone would disappear and then next time it would be all new people. And it was just a cycle where everybody knew that these people were disappearing. They were probably dying, um, but nobody could talk about it and could talk about how wrong it was. And that, that sadness, I think, is there in the Chinese people, um, that they can't deal with these things, that in their, in their heart of hearts, they may have never spoken to anybody about it, but they know that, it, that these things are wrong and these things are soul-crushing. Um, and... Yeah, it's it, it's devastating. But these people are good people. They are friendly. They are lovely. Their culture is rich, but they are just not allowed to act and to think and to speak like we would hope any person has an innate right to. Um, and that's that's really really hard to see. Um, but you can still see the humanity and the goodness that is there when you look those people in the eye. They may not be able to say it, um, but you can see that goodness still there. It's amazing to the Western mind to try to explain the fact that you can't acknowledge that a building is missing. Yeah. Like, how do you even put a Western mind around that and explain that to somebody? That's just such a paradigm shift from how we think that you have to pretend like a building doesn't exist. Yeah. And it, it's incredibly, incredibly odd. Um, and you almost start second guessing yourself. Did I just imagine a really tall tower block there all that time? Um, and there was just. And, and you don't know whether to, to live there all the time. You essentially have to enter this state of psychosis where you are tricking yourself into believing that it was never there in the first place. Obviously, why would the government lie to you? Um, and that's that's weird to see. And it, it, it's not something that I think you can ever really understand unless you spend an extended amount of time there. Um, but then when you do, and I, I remember when we left, lots of the things that we thought were normal because or tricked ourselves into thinking were normal so accepting that your house was bulked for example and then you leave and you realize it's weird but you can leave and it's the people that can't leave that it's truly devastating for um and you know those are the people that i will always feel feel the worst for because we can fight it and we can take the fight to it but if they take the fight to it it's their family that will suffer um and they will probably never see them again
and that's the bit that's the bit that is genuinely crushing yeah noah kagali is that the single biggest intimate um excuse me is that the single biggest obstacle to western policy in china is we don't understand that psychosis and that mindset i think so i think as as populations we have become which is odd with communication becoming so easy we've become so insular um and these things that are happening in our own country are huge to us so whether it's housing or whether it's energy and what is the cost of living these things are incredibly important but when it's something as basic as being able to think we lose perspective because it's the other side of the world and you'll get lots of people now in politics talking about you know whether it's something like America first or you know, focusing on Britain, but there is people on the other side of the world that aren't allowed to think. Um, and we sometimes, and it's always hard because, you know, we're always going to vote with our own interests, but until you see that it's really, really hard to appreciate how, how odd and how, how weird some of the rest of the world is. Yeah. Noah Kagali, this was outstanding stuff. My friend we will definitely be talking about it more because this problem isn't going away. Uh, let folks know where they can follow you, your writing, your other things you've been doing. You've been doing a lot of media hits too. We're going to link to all this. Let folks know where they can follow and keep up with you until they see you again back on Hurtel, my friend. Yeah. Uh, Twitter is probably the best place so at Noah Kigali. Um, so N-O-A-H-K-H-O-G-A-L-I. And then you'll get all the random musings and the random uh, and the good media hits um, on there. Yep. I'm going to get you back soon and talk again. Thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate the conversation. Noah Kigali, thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Good grief. You're very deep. I was hoping I just didn't sound... Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Let's end on a good note. I love this story, and it's a new chapter in a story from a couple of years ago. You might remember Chris Nickick. He is the individual with Down syndrome who was the first to compete in an Ironman triathlon. Well, he has one-upped himself. He has made us all look silly. He has completed the Ironman World Championship, a 146-mile race, uh, as noted by Brian Metzler on Outside and on Bleacher Report I'm reading this from. The triathlon consists of 2.4-mile swim, 112-mile bike ride, and a 26.2-mile run. That's a full marathon after doing everything else, for those of you in Logan. Uh, with the help of his volunteer guide, Dan Grebe, the 23-year-old Nickick finished the race in 16 hours, 31 minutes, 27 seconds. That's well before the cutoff time of 17 hours. Very inspiring stuff. Uh, I just cannot talk about how much this sort of thing brings me joy. My mom was a special education for many, many years, especially with children with Down syndrome. Hi, mom. I know you're listening. She's one of our best listeners. Uh, when she started out teaching in the 60s, life expectancy for people with Down syndrome was in the 30s. Now it's almost one for one with a regular adult. Why? 
because we started getting them in schools and educating these folks and giving them a hand up and treating them like the wonderful human beings they are. Love these folks, have great memories of some of them. And it just goes to show the human spirit can overcome just about anything if you let it. Well done to Nikik. Uh, make sure you check out the story. The videos and the pictures you really need to see because the reactions of this man, you know he's dead tired and he still can't hide his joy even with all the exhaustion. Make sure you watch the video of him crossing the finish line. That'll do it for her tell wherever you and yours are. We hope you're well. We want to make sure you're following and subscribing all the podcast platforms, iTunes, Spotify, whatever. YouTube, if you want to watch the video portion, also on Facebook. We've got some information coming down the pike on our radio partner. Going to be doing something exciting on the radio side come first of the year. Can't get into all of it now, but it's going to be great after the holidays. Most of all, thank you for joining us as we try to do our very best to turn down the noise of the news cycle. So wherever you and yours are, we hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. We'll talk to you again real soon for more Herd Tell. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Somos la magia.